time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Hang on a minute. Who put you in charge? And who the hell are you anyway? I'm the Doctor. I'm a Time Lord. I'm from the planet Gallifrey in the constellation of Casterberus. I'm 903 years old and I'm the man who's going to save your lives and all six billion people on the planet below. You got a problem with that? No. In that case... Hello, Z! Would you like a jelly baby? My Sarah Jane. Oh, look, rocks. Wibbly wobbly, tiny rhyming. Watch it, space man. Boy, watch it, Earth girl. I will teach you the folly of your words, Doctor! Uh, Smith. Dr. John Smith. This is Duggan. He's a detective who's been kind enough to catch me. You always were an optimist, weren't you? Thank you for the compliment. Hello. Mate in six moves, Master. Hello, everybody. Sorry, I was hoping Andy to pipe in with hello everyone, but I guess Hello that's everyone. Not... Sorry. <laughs> nah, that's it doesn't right. work when it's not Michael. I get confused. <laughs> that's true. And welcome to episode 17 of Who True Freaks, the greatest Doctor Who show that's not officially on the Two True Freaks proper feed anymore. So yes, if you want to listen to us and you are just subscribing to Two True, Two True Freaks 2 in iTunes, you'll have to go to our specific feed of Two True Freaks Presents Who True Freaks. Of course, if you didn't know that, you're probably not listening to this, and I'm just wasting my time. So there's that. <laughs> but you're missing all this goodness. That's true. But if you are listening to us, I thank you for coming to the show, because this time out, we've got a doozy of a series to talk about. With almost all the iterations of the Doctor represented by the show, we're going to take a little break from the retrospective on the actors who portrayed the Doctor and look at some of our favorite episodes or series of the show. And this time out, we travel back to the Halcyon days of 1976, where the American Bicentennial was just beginning, the Bay City Rollers were burning up the charts, and Steve Jobs began screwing Steve Wozniak out of fame and fortune by starting up the Apple Computer Company, with him taking all the credit for himself. Uh, and also at the beginning of this year, the Doctor had an encounter with a man-eating plant in The Seeds of Doom, the sixth serial of the 13th season of the show. And today, we're going to talk about why we love this serial, and of course, by we, I mean myself, Sean Engel, and my two UK cohorts, Mr. Dave Walker and Mr. Andrew Leyland. How's it going, Hello. guys? Uh, it's fine, thank you. Thank you for inviting us. 
Oh, he well, said, having really invited himself. Well, yeah, this, the, to, to pull back the curtain here, basically you know, what happened was Andy had messaged me on Facebook or emailed me or something and said, when are we going to talk about the Seeds of Doom? I've said, as soon as humanly possible, because I remember this episode being really good. Now, I didn't realize how good it was, but man, I'm looking forward to this. And by the by the stone silence, I think everyone else is looking forward to it as well. Yeah, we're, we're listening to you with bated breath. Yes, we're listening to what you were saying. Okay. Well. Yeah. Well, the original pitch to you was, why don't you just get people on to talk about their favorite episodes? Because I thought that'd be fun. Mm-hmm. And I said, this is mine. This is my all-time favorite episode of Doctor Who that is of the original show. I mean, I did a top ten episodes of Palace of Glittering Delights, which you will also have to listen to on its own feed. Go and listen to it. It's dead good. I'm on it. How could you not want to listen to that, then? And uh, I said I wasn't including old episodes of Doctor Who because you were going to start doing this. And this would have been in that top ten list if I was including old Doctor Who. Now, Dave, uh, you actually, you know, when I mentioned doing this, uh, you know, you actually messaged me with a different, uh, you know, reason why you're on this show. Now, what was your reason for uh, talking, wanting to talk about Seas of Doom? Generally, um... During dinner time, uh, instead of watching horrible, horrific news reports, uh, me and my dad stick on an episode of Doctor Who. So we've been gradually working our way through the Tom Baker stuff. And when it was mentioned, I think we'd literally finished up watching that like a couple of days beforehand. And it's pretty damn good. (laughs) uh, But it was my first time watching it uh, because I kind of wasn't born when it was on. Shut up! Just a little bit not born. Let's see. Just a little bit not born. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I swear blind. This is my earliest memory of Doctor Who. Now I've talked before about how your memory cheats on various different shows, and I have very explicit memories of the show from being a kid. I remember Scaroth of the Geograph ripping his head off, and I specifically remember Genesis of the Daleks. But when the the internet came along, you start to realise, I can't have watched Genesis of the Daleks on its first screen, and even I was too young then to have watched that initially, but it got repeated a number of times as an edited-together feature-length special. So that must be where I remember Genesis of the Daleks from. But my other big memory of Doctor Who from being a very small child is a man turning into a plant and that plant and then stomping all over a house and that's this episode mm-hmm. now as far as I can determine from said internet the cobbled together feature length version of this episode never heard it was scheduled to be heard and then bumped in favour of something else so I must remember this from its initial hearing which would make it my earliest proper memory of Doctor Who being those two scenes. I'll have been three and a half when this heard in the early part of 1976. It heard end of January, beginning of February 76. So I'll have been three and a half years old. Yeah, over here in the States, uh, like I've said before, a lot of uh, Doctor Who primarily uh, aired on the PBS stations, which were in, in America, we had three primary networks, ABC, NBC, and CBS. We'd have local affiliates if you were in a bigger market that would have UHF stations. But the other sort of fourth network was PBS, which showed, you know, these uh, 
shows that you probably find mostly on you know A&E or the Discovery Channel or stuff like that, science shows and educational shows. But they'd also have shows like uh, Monty Python and Doctor Who and unfortunately later Are You Being Served? The best, less said about that is better. But uh, I remember seeing my first memory of Doctor Who was actually seeing the regeneration of uh, Tom Baker in Robot and that may not be the best episode but it was at the time I was starved for sci-fi I'd been a big fan of Star Wars and to see this sort of sci-fi thing on TV you know these people traveling in time this giant robot menacing things I was like I was absolutely hooked so my first sort of memory with Doctor Who is is obviously tied very heavily to Tom Baker. And, you know, if I could do Who True Freaks and just talk about every Tom Baker episode, I would. But I'd be doing a disservice to people who, who like other things. But I'm more than happy to talk about this episode because this is really a great one. Uh, if you want, I'll go ahead and uh, start my little spiel and uh, give some information about the show and uh, give it a okay. little synopsis. Cool. Okay. All right. Uh, like I said at the opening, Seeds of Doom was the sixth and final serial of the 13th season of Doctor Who, and it aired in the UK in six weekly parts starting on January 31st of 1976. It was written by Robert Banks Stewart and directed by Douglas Camfield, edited by Robert Holmes, and produced by Philip Hinchcliffe. The, cl- the cast included Tom Baker as the Doctor, Elizabeth Sladen as Sarah Jane Smith, Tony Beckley as Harrison Chase, Kenneth Kilbert as Richard Dunbar, Michael Barrington as Sir Colin Thackeray, I love that name, Sylvia Coolidge as Emilio Ducat, John Chalice as Scorby, Mark Jones as Arnold Keeler, and Seymour Green as Hargreaves. And I was a lazy bum this time out and stole the synopsis from the BB website and made some modifications when needed. Two alien seed pods are found buried in the Antarctic permafrost, and the doctor realizes that they are from a crinoid a form of plant life that infects and transforms all animal life on planets upon which it becomes established. One of the pods infects a scientist at the Antarctic base, but the developing crinoid is destroyed by bombs set by two men, Scorby, a gun-toting Dave Grohl wannabe, and Keeler, his nevish sidekick, who have made off with the other pod for their boss, eccentric plant collector Harrison Chase, played by the love child of Ricardo Multibon and Al Gore. At his mansion in England, Chase arranges for the pod to be opened under controlled conditions, while a human host, Sarah, is held nearby. The doctor rescues Sarah, but Keeler is infected. Keeler's transformation into a crinoid is accelerated by Chase, who has, who has him fed with raw meat. The creature escapes and goes on the rampage, rapidly growing to giant proportions. Chase decides to turn the doctor into compost by feeding him into a pulverizing machine. The Time Lord escapes, but Chase falls into the machine and is killed in perhaps the most bloodless manner ever. I mean, even the scene at Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom was bloodier than this, and that crushing machine only looked like it squashed a tomato. Anyhow, Unit have meanwhile been called in, and they arrange for the crinoid to be bombed before it can spread its pods across the earth. And that was the very simple synopsis from the BBC website. Uh, let's go ahead and talk about this episode. What do you guys think about this? Uh, I don't think I'd be on an episode of Who True Freaks that talks about your favourite episodes of Doctor Who and pick the Seeds of Doom if it wasn't one of my favourite episodes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think that kind of gives it away a little yeah, bit. Yeah, it, it I, does a little bit. I I love this one. I think this one's absolutely fantastic. I really do. It's um, it's one of those things, it's delightful 
to go back to something that you remember from being three and a half years old and watch it on DVD as a 40 <laughs> something year old and it's still <laughs> up as a piece of entertainment and as we were recording this we're currently in the middle of series 8 or 30 something whichever way you want to call it and you know I'm enjoying it it's fine but there's just something about it that's not gelling for me and then I put this on and it's still magnificent on a script level. You could take this script and film it today and it would still work. And it's possible to, to mictake some of it because it's a 70s episode of Doctor Who. So yes, the snow is polystyrene. Mm-hmm. And yes, there is a wobbly wall. And yes, some of the special effects don't perhaps hold up nearly 40 years later. But from a script and performance level, you know everything that matters, script, character, performance, this is still magnificent and it is of a kind that the show isn't doing anymore i don't want to be get off my lawn but it feels now that everything has to in some way relate back to the doctor we have to peel more layers away from the doctor and reveal what he was like as a child or the companion has to be in some way important in that way that the old series in this particular story the doctor and sarah jane aren't the central characters the central character is the the bad guy harrison chase the doctor is the guy who shows up to fix the problem and sarah jane is his plucky companion there is nothing amazing about them there's no world building there's no mythology jiddly fuckery going on it's just an excellent story and sarah jane by not being special is special because she's absolutely brilliant in this one and the parallels to Joseph W. Campbell's thing from another world will have gone right over my head as a three and a half year old, but are now blatantly obvious, especially given that the thing was repeated on ITV4 here just the other night. Mm-hmm. So I'm watching the Seeds of Doom and I'm watching the thing at the same time. And it's the same plot for the first two episodes. But the genius of this one, what Philip Hinchcliffe would say to his writers is he didn't like six part episodes. He said he previously thought that back in the the earlier days of the show, when it went on to six, eight, sometimes ten-part stories, it dragged. It went on too long. So what he would tell his writers is write a two-parter and a four-parter and give them some connective tissue. And nowhere is that more apparent in this one, where the first two parts take place in the Antarctic, and then the last four parts are essentially a standard 70s Doctor Who horror story set in England. Uh, but the connective tissue is the pod that is taken from the Antarctic to England and because of that this never drags yeah um, I agree you know, the first... it's... Go ahead. yeah for six episodes sorry I, walked... I didn't mean to interrupt no, no. for six episodes it never feels like there's padding going on here for me this is the second best six part episode after Talons of Wang Chiang and it's on a par with Genesis of the Daleks and even Genesis of the Daleks has some padding in it as a six-part story this has not this is just brilliant if especially if you watch an episode a day which is how i did it it just builds on the last one and i thought it held up really really well in like say all the bits that matter character performance script it's still brilliant 40 years later what about you dave what are your opinions on this i really i really enjoyed it it's it's very different to what i've been seen lately anyway with the current stuff as you said but to be honest I kind of like the model work in it as well the special effects although it's very 70s um, they still looked kind of good you know might just be an opinion or a line for the old stuff but you don't see as much model work in things these days it's it's mostly just CG special effects 
Yeah, I don't disagree. The shot of the house blowing up. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, it's still impressive, isn't it? At the end. I mean, we've just ruined the end. Sorry. Oh, well, Sorry. We we kind of you know you can't you know the the entire idea was the Krenad was going to take over the planet unless something happened, and you know obviously that the planet wasn't taken over well the final ending is actually the doctor a sort of you know gag ending with the doctor and sarah jane getting into the tardis and you know coming out in antarctica rather than you know a sunny beach that felt and, very very odd though and I, I don't know what it was it just seemed kind of misplaced yeah and and the odd thing was in this the the tardis wasn't even really used in this until the very end so i don't know you know it was kind of interesting that the tardis didn't initially travel to Antarctica, you know, it was the doctor came in yeah. there in a unit helicopter or a unit. Yeah, it's to throw back to the John Pertwee era, which a couple of stories in Tom Baker's early seasons were. Every now and again, he would find himself called back into action by unit, and Baker didn't like that over much. So his doctor portrays it as not liking it. But I think one of the things I like about this one is Baker largely is still underplaying the role. We've not got to the point yet where outside forces <laughs> Murray Whitehouse has made the show tone itself down and Philip Hinchcliffe has been dispatched to go and work on something else and suddenly it's turned into a pantomime comedy, the Tom Baker show. He's still very clearly here playing a darker, moodier version of the Doctor and he's still funny in that way that Baker just is naturally funny but he's not dominating proceedings. Like I said, the Doctor is not a central character in this story. He's the guy who shows up, fixes the problem, and leaves. Harrison Chase is the the centre point character of the story. And the guy who plays him is well, Blakely. What's his name? Tony Blakely? Let me see here. Um... Uh... Yeah, Tony Blakely. Yeah, Tony, Tony Blakely. He's better, known, he's better known as Camp Freddy from the Italian job. The um the proper the original one. job, yeah, not the yeah. crappy remake. Not the, yeah, the Jeff Yeah, and he's he's a brilliant bad guy because mm. on the face of it, as as the Doctor points out himself in the early episode, in the early issue issues, the early episode set in the Antarctic, the Crinoid is not a bad guy. The Crinoid is is his whole reason for being is to eat meat which is us, but he has been taken out of his environment through no fault of its own. So, obviously, if it gets loose on Earth, it's a huge threat and the Doctor has to stop it. But as he points out, it in and of itself is not a baddie. It's just doing what it needs to do to survive. But Harrison Chase is an out-and-out scumbag. Because there's a bit, there's a beautiful bit in it where... um, it kills somebody earlier on and one of the pods is destroyed and Chase's reaction isn't he doesn't care about the people that have been killed it's oh I could have had two pods yeah and just he's just his icy delivery throughout the end he never overplays it he never camps it up he's a brilliant bad guy one of the best he's, he's kind of like a Bond villain yeah it's it's I, I, I was watching it and I just kept thinking why doesn't he have a white cat to stroke? Oh, because he doesn't like animals. You know, he's busy stroking his plants. Yes. And I love the way, I love his gloves and I love the way he's dressed. I just love everything about him because he's a respected member of the, member of the community. But as with an awful lot of Doctor Who, surface appearance is not the reality. And I just think he's a brilliant bad guy. He doesn't moustache twirl, he never telegraphs it. It's brilliant. It's an excellent performance of a brilliantly written part. 
The one thing I will mention, you know, that, that I do like about the gloves, and this is probably for me coming from a lot of the vault of startling monster horror tales of terror show is that we had done a lot of giallo films. And one of the main tropes of giallo films is the evil person who wears these tight leather gloves, you know, who's usually the murderer or, or the bad guy in there. And the fact that, uh, that chase was this character who throughout all his times was touching, you know, had these dark gloves, gave that sort of menace to him. You know, he, he is a great villain and he's not, you know, I, I like the, the sort of eco, not really the eco terrorism, uh, aspect of it, but the fact that he prefers plants and feels that plants, you know, should be the, the dominant life form on the planet, that kind of radical thought. And, you know, I'm certain we could tie it in some way to like earth first or something like that. But, you know, the fact that he, this, this is a character that, you know, uh, embodies that kind of radical idea. It's, it, it makes him for a, a, an interesting and sort of different villain for the time. Yeah, he considers the bonsai thing uh, of trimming the plants as torture. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of very telling because he thinks plants have feelings, well, which he also has the sort some of them do. Doctor vibes feel as you know he's uh playing the music the different sort of discordant music to try and help the plants grow and everything that he's got this idea that that you know benefits the plants in some way so he's really just a a bizarre and kind of out there villain but you know just he's perfect for this role I want to talk a little bit about Sarah Jane. I really enjoyed uh, pretty much any time Elizabeth Sladen was on the screen. I liked, but this time out, she had some really good moments. You, you know, at times she played the sort of damsel in distress. I mean, you know, when when she's being held down by the guys and uh, supposed to be held, you know, attacked by the Crunoid Pod. But there are moments where she plays the strong female role. And, you know, even, you know, takes down the character of Scorby and, you know, basically, well, not takes him down like physically, but, you know, takes him down a notch, you know, saying that a female character who uh, Scorby, you know, kind of dismissed is actually doing a heroic thing here. So I, you know, I was glad to see a sort of return to Sarah Jane because the last last time we talked about Sarah Jane was during the uh, school reunion and the. Uh, the, the one with the uh, vultures I can't remember from the Sarah Jane adventures and in that I didn't really think that they captured her they kind of you know you know had uh, had her played as sort of the lovesick you know friend of the doctor and I think this was a better representation of Sarah Jane in the series yes <laughs> yes <laughs> um, I was no I was just thinking about I love Sarah Jane in this one because she is the strong plucky companion she even saves the doctor's life. On uh, on more than one occasion when he's in the Thrasher that you mentioned. It's when they earlier. begin the slow moving dipping mechanism. Sorry, the slow moving. Yes. <laughs> There's a high speed. He, he he does the he does Doctor Evil. He he goes. I'm just going to put him in an easily escapable situation uh, and hope it all goes to plan. And then walk away. Yeah, he leaves him. And there's a faster speed. He could have had it done in a couple of seconds and walked out. Doctor would have but been this... dead. This leads into your excellent suggestion that he's a Bond villain mm. with everything that a Bond villain entails, including being slightly crap. <laughs> but he does learn from that, though. Yeah, yeah, The next yeah. time he uses that machine, he stays and watches till the end. Yes, Even though it doesn't cause 
any blunder whatsoever, as you said, Sean. Well, on the machine at all. If you watch, if you watch the DVD, you know you can watch it with the captions on. Oh yeah, where they tell you Ooh. fun stories. Uh, the caption for that they originally wanted to throw blood all over the cutters, and Philip Hinchcliffe being constantly aware of Murray Whitehouse at that point, being on the show's back, said, uh, no, I think we'll get letters about that. So they were aware of it, and they did want to do that, but he, he said no. Well, that, that's disappointing, because it did... It didn't really take me out of it, but it would have it would have done more to sell the sort of horror of what was going on in this. I mean, you see these giant, you know, uh, the, this giant sort of thresher machine that's supposed to compost everyone up. There, you know, the, the threat of you know, whoever being trapped in that being turned into mulch, you know, it would have been a nice visual cue if we would have got a, just a little bit of gore. I mean, I'm not I'm not talking, you know, like, you know, Fargo levels of blood spray, but, you know, just <laughs> if they could have done a little Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and, you know, you see a little patter of blood, that wouldn't, but... Should have gone, should have gone full Dexter. <laughs> <laughs> you are still talking about a show that was on at, at five to six in the evening. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, uh, yes, again, was primarily a show that, you know, not really a kid's show, but a, a show that, you know, appealed to younger viewers. So, yeah, you understand. I was going to say, it's kind of, you've got the, again, the Bond villain dying by the machine that he has tried to kill people in and has killed people in. But one of the best parts of that scene is the Doctor fighting with him while Sarah Jean's struggling to get up to the off switch but can't because he tied her up you know she's she's trying to get to it but just can't seem to get out of the ropes that she's been tied in no that's fine because it's, it's absolutely true hmm. that at no point in this is Sarah Jane the damsel in distress yeah she stands up for herself throughout this entire episode, and she's really cool in it, I mean she's wearing some of the most hideous clothes imaginable <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that... the yellow the yellow thing she wore in Genesis of the Daleks is better than this. I mean, at least she's not dressed like Andy Pandy, like in The Hand of Fear. But, God, what she's wearing is awful. And I can only assume... I don't know whether uh, Elizabeth Slynn picked her own clothes. And if she did, I apologise. But the clothing choices for Sarah Jane are awful. Interestingly, Tom Baker's wearing a different jacket. Did he wear this through this entire series? This longer grey jacket rather than the brown one that he wore at the beginning? I don't know. I, I'm trying to remember. I know he switched them up a little. You know, it's it's not the traditional the traditional jacket that we see. You know, it's got, you know, the, the patches on the elbows. And it's not the, you know, uh, it, it may have just been him switched out. Of course, the scarf is the shorter scarf because, you know, it does drag, but... It's only wrapped around his neck once, so... Well, you wouldn't want him wearing that scarf and then being trapped in the in the plant chopper, would you? Yeah, no, that would, you know, that, that'd be a specific way he'd get pulled in. That Tom, Tom Baker could have kept this. him from going in. Could have That's true, if, if he wrapped it around something, yeah. Um, speaking of Tom Baker, uh, this is... It's not... Uh, different than tom baker but tom baker is an action hero in this i mean he you know he jumps through uh a, a pane a glass pane in the roof he's uh brandishing a gun he's driving you know uh, uh he's driving cars i mean uh, this is more action than i've seen you know uh, in a tom baker serial uh, and he's he's very, you know, she's very shouty as well. He's yeah. very uh, aggressive during this. You know, he he he's he's a badass. 
and it kind of makes me feel that this might have not specifically been a sort of Doctor Who type thing, but it might have been, you know, more of a kind of more like an Avengers or, you know, a, a series kind of like that. I don't know if it I'm not saying it's a repurposed episode, but it, it kind of has a different feel than other Doctor. And I like it because I like to see I, I really like the sort of action hero Doctor. Yeah, it did. It did sometimes feel more like an episode of the Avengers, or like a, a John Pertwee episode, because mm-hmm. John Pertwee was very much a man of action. John Pertwee would drive and run and punch and do his Venusian Aikido, or whatever it was. Tom didn't really do a lot of that, so it was quite unusual to have him pick up a gun, because by and large the Doctor doesn't use guns, doesn't like guns, and Tom did again the the text commentary while you're watching the episode he did alter a few lines regarding the doctor holding the gun of some description he would he changed the dialogue so it was less i don't want to say pro because that's not really what he was doing but it was less more the doctor having the weapon and relying on it he changed a couple of lines of dialogue to be more well we've got this what do we do with it kind of thing i like tom in this one I think there is an argument to be made that as we go along after Sir Jane leaves, they give Tom too much script approval and too much of an opportunity to change the scripts. If the text commentary on this one's to be believed, he only changed a couple of lines of dialogue where he felt they weren't in keeping with his characterization of the Doctor, which works and it works fine in this one and whilst like I said in the intro whilst he's still funny he's still taking this seriously because the threat here is if that crinoid gets large enough it's wiping out all life on earth and it's kind of hard to think that later seasons he may have taken this same plot as seriously as he does here he probably would have made it played it more for laughs but ultimately I think that's why this one works as well as it does no one in this show sending it up Scorby's not sending it up uh, Harrison Chase isn't sending it up the Doctor isn't, Sarah Jane isn't and that's what makes it feel real even though it's patently ridiculous in places yeah I'll, I'll agree with that they're, they're definitely it's, it does have a much darker more serious tone you, know, you get into later episodes and I think you know probably when Douglas Adams was you know sort of script supervisor that sort of era you know you do get this sort of jokey sort of off the cuff you know not really taking things all that serious Doctor Who but uh, here you know we're seeing a very determined you know grim action oriented Doctor and it, it really works it, it helps sell the sort of the intensity of what's supposed to be going on throughout all this and it's you know Tom Baker really did shine in this episode so it was great getting to, to getting to rewatch this um are there any other characters we want to kind of hit on? I mean, uh, we've not talked about Scorby. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. I misheard I mi- that. I misheard that the first couple of times. I was going, is is that any reference to Farskip? No, Scorby, <laughs> not Scorby. <laughs> yeah, John Chalice is better known as Boise from Only Fools and Horses now, but in yeah. the 70s, he kind of made a career out of playing thugs and and policemen. That essentially was his stock in trade throughout the 70s. He was in The Sweeney, and he was in Dixon and Doc Green, and he was in all those police shows. Uh, Scorby's a great character because he's just an out-and-out out and out thug, and he's thick. But he's well, not bothered by the fact... Oh, yeah, because he's got a goatee. Yeah. So, obviously. But he's not bothered that he's thick, and he's not bothered that he's a thug. Because he actually says in the episode, the only, the only religion he follows is money. Hmm. 
And I thought Chalice did an excellent job with it because he vacillates wildly throughout the entire show as to whose side he's on because obviously he's on his own side no matter what happens. But there's a brilliant bit at the at the end of it when he, he runs out to get away and gets killed and he's not, you know, he doesn't ham up his, his death scene either. It's what I'm going to say. Every single actor in this is is playing it straight. And I love Scorby's interactions with the Doctor. Because the Doctor's just got no time for him. Because he's a thick thug. And the Doctor knows he can't possibly um, argue with him. Because the guy will just punch him. Hmm. So he just treats him with utter contempt throughout the entire show. No, I agree. You know, he's not he's not like the character of Chase who is... Who is you know, a, a very conniving and very intellectual, and you know, was taking this seriously. He, you know, Scorby is just basically in there as as muscle for the main bad guy, but he plays it up perfectly, and I, I really enjoyed that character in the show. I, you know, I've never, you know, I've I've heard of the Sweeney, and you know, it's probably another one of those shows like League of Gentlemen that I'll need to see if it's on Netflix. But he 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 did a great job. I thought he was a good antagonistic character and then you know the doctor does get to do some really wonderful shouty exposition alongside him it's great um i like very much that the first two parts of the show can almost stand alone as its own episode the first two parts set in the antarctic are, are every bit as gripping as the final four parts which are set in in contemporary england and all of that stuff is really good yeah, the idea that, you know, it was essentially a two-part episode and then a four-part episode, you know, I think really worked for this. You know, the the first two parts being essentially the thing from the other world or, you know, even if you wanted to say later on it being sort of derivative of John Carpenter's thing. It it, it, it was great and that's, that's a great way, I think, to look at it if you're, you know, because you're having to do these sometimes because of your mandate of how many episodes you have to put out in a season – you're having to do these longer form serials in order to keep it from bogging down in like the fourth and fifth uh, episode, you know, splitting it up like this is, is genius. And I, I, I think it really worked here and it's, it's shown that it, it's shown to have worked really well here. It's show it's Philip Hintercliffe showing his intelligence as a producer. Cause essentially that first two parts have such a completely different look to the final four parts but as a whole it all works together as one story i i love this one i genuinely do i think it's it's dark and creepy it's exceptionally well directed and the dialogue is is really good throughout while still bordering a little bit on campy james bond villainy with Harrison Chase, it works for the character. Especially seen as at no point does he ever think that he's wrong. He goes to his death going, this is brilliant, I'm going to become one with the plants, I'm going to live as I die, or die as I lived. And he's brilliant. He, he never sees the error of his ways. It's just great. Mm-hmm. Now, I was, you know, we mentioned at the beginning, you know, how, how well the special effects have held up. You know, I think the uh, the makeup and the transformation for the crinoid scenes is is perhaps some of the best makeup I've seen in in this classic era of Doctor Who, and I'd love to see the crinoid. I'm certain, you know, if Shag were on here, he'd tell us all the expanded universe, you know, appearances of the crinoid and all this. Uh, do we, you know, what do what do we think about the uh, special effects and makeup and all that? Well, apparently the outfit itself for the humanoid one was an excellent outfit painted green oh really yep um 
can't remember what store that is. Terror of the no, wouldn't be Terror of the Axons or Planet of the Axons, something like that. Mm. But that's that's where the uh, the value fit came from. But just the varying stages of it, because um, uh, the Keeler one and the guy whose name I can't remember at the Antarctic, they're they're very different when they're transforming as well. It it doesn't look the same, so it's like it's having different effects on different people. Yeah, well, which which makes know. sense, doesn't it? That it would you affect know. different people mm. in different ways. Um, I I love the, I think that the makeup effects are still pretty impressive. Mm. I mean, you can poke a little bit of fun at some of it, but like I said, the snow is clearly polystyrene <laughs> in places. And when the crinoid grows to be the size of a house, some of the the OS, the CSI, so OSI, that's where Steve Austin works for, isn't it? The CSI, <laughs> CSI, that's even worse. Some of the, the background overlay, stuff. that's the stuff. Thank you very much. It has a proper acronym, but I don't for life I remember what it is. Yeah. Some of that stuff looks a little bit ropey as you get towards the end. But like Dave said, the, the effects of the house blowing up and of the Antarctic building blowing up, all that stuff, still magnificent. Do you know what I realise it reminds me of? Is possibly why I like it. Thunderbirds. Just a little bit of the old Jerry Anderson stuff. You think? Why? Why do you think that? It's. I don't know. It's just sometimes when their models would blow up, uh, oh, it was. Right. You know, it's. Yeah, there's, there's a definite Anderson look to the explosions. Hmm. Yeah, I can see that. I can see what you're saying. Because they film it in a number of frames per second slower than regular film as well. So when it blows up, it looks like it's in slow motion. Which is, I th- I thought the special effect shots of, of stuff like that was really impressive. Well, and I think um, I think when they no, do well, the crino- when they do the crinoid scene, you know, they do show it in a slow down effect to sort of give it more weight because because simply for the fact that it is a sort of rubbery model or a rubbery uh, object on a model house, you know, if you showed it at regular speed, it kind of looked kind of fake, and that's one of those things I know they doing like Godzilla or those Daikaiju movies, they slow things down to give those characters a bit more weight there. So it works here as well. And that, that'll just make Luke Jack and Eddie happy knowing that Doctor Who and you know, Godzilla you know, sort of work in the same way. <laughs> uh, the Seeds of Doom ended season 13, and this original ending was supposed to be the Hand of Fear. Yeah. And Sarah Jane was supposed to leave, and there was even talk about killing her off in this episode, but they changed their mind. If you actually look at the run of episodes that were in this season, Terror of the Zygons, Planet of Evil, Pyrrhids of Mars, The Android Invasion, The Brain of Morbius, and then this one, there isn't a single bad one amongst oh. that run. Oh no, I just uh, I actually just finished up watching Brain of Morbius oh, about a month or so ago, and that was just wonderful. That was a great show to watch. And, you know, like I said, Pyramids of Mars is another one. You know, if, if you have Netflix, I think that's one of the ones in the American classic Doctor Who that you can go check out, which is another great one. Dealing with uh, Sutek, I think, is it's a great, great episode. Mm, there isn't a bad one, though. Terror of the Zygons is another one of my favorites. So is the Android Invasion. But this entire season is just Tom and Sarah Jane at the peak of their powers. Mm-hmm. And this culminates and what was an excellent season. If you only watch one old season, then go and watch this one and see what you think, because you pretty much got the gamut of Tom Baker episodes there, from other planets to far away in time to working for Unit. All of it's in there. Now, are are we kind of disappointed that you know when Unit came in that we couldn't get the Brigadier in? Does anyone know if you know he was just unavailable or if uh, you know uh, uh, Nicholas Courtney couldn't make this series or? 
from what I understand, it was just because it wasn't a big enough role to actually justify bringing the kind of main unit characters back. Yeah, and, it's a, it's on that's on the text commentary on the DVD. It's exactly like Dave said. The original script didn't call for unit to be in it as much as they ended up being after rewrites. So in the initial budget allocation, they didn't allow for employing Nicholas Courtney. When the scripts changed, they did make an effort, they say in the, the text commentary, to get in touch with him, but he was in Canada doing a play anyway, so he wouldn't have been available anyway. So they ended up just having to write for generic unit officer. Um, if this has a weak point, it is that when units show up at the end, we don't get any of the familiar faces. We don't even get Benton. No, it's it's all it's all, and uh, the unfortunate thing is, unit is pretty ineffectual in here. The the giant laser cannon with the sort of mirrored thing on there doesn't really doesn't really do anything. And you know, it's it's finally required. I guess the RAF to come in and basically blow up the house to, to take out the crinoid. I really wanted the crinoid just to say at one point, don't you know your weapons have no effect on me? <laughs> uh, I get it, Dave. Yay, Princess Base. <laughs> it's Mystery Science Theater, Andy. I'm sorry. If you watch plenty of that, and Dave and I have, you'll understand. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll take your word for it. <laughs> we... We get these blank stares every once in a while. It's fine. <laughs> but do we have anything else we want to talk about this? You know, uh, or, or, or have we? Is there anything we haven't touched on yet? Um, Amelia Duckett. Oh God, yes. <laughs> Miss, she, she kind of reminded me of Miss Marple at one point, mm-hmm. but she was very stealthy in going in. You think she's a doddering old woman, and it turns out she's like a spy for the. Well, I don't know why the World Ecology Bureau would need a spy, but, you know, they send her in. Um, I read the novelization of this, and that entire bit is cut out, which I was disappointed with. Um, really? Because essentially, she... she's she's only in the book to tell them where to go. She's like, um, well, I am in the Wolverine movie. You know, she just tells them, go to here and meet this person. And <laughs> that that's the entire point of, of that in the book. It's much better what she has in the episode just is she's a lot more fun and apparently tom baker kind of liked her acting so much that he kind of suggested her as a new companion for him obviously they didn't take him up on that but i think that would have been interesting just to have an older female companion for a while to have miss marple bumming around with the doctor (laughs) that would be so much fun it would yeah yeah, or jessica fletcher oh God, yeah. Yeah, well, then unfortunately, everywhere the doctor went, you know, someone would inadvertently have to die, which would mean kind of. That happens anyway! Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I. Speaking of deaths, who survives this? The doctor and Sarah Jane. And the one other named character, uh, Sir Colin? Sir Colin Thackeray survives. Does does Seymour Green survive? survive? Yeah, Yeah, I think. They're not named. No, that's true. But no, everyone else dies because one, it's Doctor Who from the early 70s. The one named unit guy who comes in gets mulched. Yep. I'm glad Benton wasn't in it. Because <laughs> <laughs> you think Benton would have been the one who got mulched. Oh. Well, they, I mean, unit doesn't appear for a while after this. They could have easily mulched Benton and not had to worry about it. Yeah. Yeah, but, and in, people in terms of... 
In terms of saving lives, the Doctor fails quite miserably in this episode. In terms of saving the world, he succeeds admirably, it has to be said. Yeah, but saving... The, again, I was going on, sorry. I was going to say, but saving on-screen lives, yeah, not so much. Not so good, no. I mean, the only other thing I've got on this one, why does the TARDIS appear in the Antarctic at the end of the episode when they didn't go there in the TARDIS? Yeah. See, my kind of sort of no prize for that is the idea that the TARDIS knows where to go uh, it kind of takes the doctor to the place where the doctor needs to go to solve things or to save the planet or whatever. It's kind of got this quote unquote mind of its own to go where the doctor needs to go. So since the doctor went there initially, not via the TARDIS, the TARDIS went there because it still felt that that was where it needed to go initially. So I don't know if that's a good no prize, but that, that'd be my explanation. Plus it gives, plus it gives, you know, a sort of crap, you know, reason for a sort of funny gag ending with Sarah Jane and another really unbecoming swim outfit. That was apparently the last appearance of the of the original TARDIS, or at least one that was refurbished from the original. It apparently um, collapsed or disintegrated or something shortly after this, so they had to do an entirely new TARDIS after that. Hmm. I think um, I, I heard it collapsed during the shortly after this and is that when it collapsed why... on Liz Slayton that's possible that's possibly what they're talking about right because but... I, I do know there's a story of the roof collapsing on her that's possibly the reason why it doesn't show up in this as well <laughs> but th- for that they'd have to they'd have to have filmed that scene last or first the last mm. scene which would be very strange and not but... beyond the realms of possibility though because no. I mean, it, she's only in the outfit in that specific outfit for a couple of minutes. You get her out of you get her out, uh, out of that and into the kind of snow outfit, and yeah. you film the rest of the scenes. On the text commentary, it says that that bikini was nicked off somebody else. Um, Michelle Dutrice from Some Mothers Do Haven't. Oh, which will mean nothing to Sean. Yeah, I, I'm completely uh, knowledgeable <laughs> about that show. Yes, I've do you know Condor Man? <laughs> yes, I know Condor Man, which is it's the guy from that in a comedy series. A very okay. successful comedy series that seemed to run forever. Yes. Okay, well, I'll take your take your word for it then. Uh, okay, well, just, just along those lines, if you go on BBC.com, they have paperwork relating to the episode. Now, this is only going to be purely for Dave and I. Sorry, Sean. But before this episode, they heard two Tom and Jerry cartoons, The Little Orphan and Barbecue Brawl, before episode one. And there was a trailer, so this will take you back a little bit if you're old enough people that are listening to this. Following Doctor Who was It Cliff and Friends, Cliff Richard's variety show. <laughs> then a film called Don't Just Stand There, and then look, Mike Yarwood, which was, Mike Yarwood was a, a stand-up comic who had his own show on BBC One. And if you go through all this paperwork, it's fascinating to have a look at what else was on on this Saturday night. I mean, Hardy Perennial Jim will fix it was on, but we don't like to talk about that anymore. <laughs> for rather obvious reasons. Canon was on later on in the evening. Because it all these are fascinating if you're interested in television. Because it actually tells you how long the trailers are that are before the episode. So you've got a 17 second trailer, for example, for Scylla Black and a five second trailer for Kojak before Seeds of Doom part two or three 
And so these are really fascinating to look at to remind yourself of exactly what it was that was on when Doctor Who was on on, on the Saturday night then. Because my memory is distinctly of watching Basil Brush and then Doctor Who and then sitting through two or three hours of inordinate bilge to get to Starsky and Hutch. And looking at these, yes, it was bilge. I mean, another night, Ham was on, Scylla Black was on. Barry Stuller and Kenny Ball and his jazz men. This sounds like absolutely riveting television. Oh no, that was just the music they were using. I'm very sorry. The narration and it's... Yeah, oh, this is brilliant. It tells you the music and the narrator of the commercials. Oh, oh. this is fantastic stuff. Now, this was absolutely the, brilliant. See, I, I remember seeing that as a special feature on the DVD that I got from Netflix and that was... I, I was looking through it and I was like, I don't know any of these shows. So that was yeah. what the BBC was airing. Yeah, you, know, you will you will know none of this. But yeah, so before Tom and Jerry, there was a couple of Tom and... Uh, before Tom and Jerry. Before Doctor Who, there was a couple of Tom and Jerry cartoons. And then some tedious variety show before... They obviously must have shown an American import at 9 o'clock on Saturday night. And at this point, they were showing canon. But I, I remember waiting up for Starsky and Hutch, but God, there's some bilge on between those two shows. I never had to wait up for Starsky and Hutch. I caught it at the, like, two o'clock um, reruns in the 80s. You got, yeah, you got it in the afternoon repeats. I watched it when it was originally on, dude, at nine o'clock. Yeah, but I still watched them. I was, oh, like, well, four. That, <laughs> that, just, that just shows your intense taste. That's where I watched the Six Million Dollar Man, Starsky and Hutch and Incredible Hulk, I think, was on around that time as well. Yeah, they got all the afternoon thingos, then the afternoon yeah. repeats. I'm going to have to watch some of those again. I'll do a Palace of Glittering Delights about them if you want. Yay! <laughs> anyway, that's what was on BBC One at this time. And my God, most of it was driven. You can understand why this show, even with its wobbly sets and quite naff special effects why this show has survived and those have just paled into insignificance. Yeah, Because I mean, anything's it, better than Cliff Richard? Anything's better than it's Cliff <laughs> and Friends. With, with the exception of the young ones, the young ones <laughs> yes. with Cliff Richard is quite funny. Yes, uh, yes. Yes. Yes, I will admit, I would not know who Cliff Richard was and if it were not for the young ones, so thank you for that. Well, uh, that, this has been great. I, I'm glad that we, I'm glad we're going to be doing these little shows about, you know, just having people come on and talk about their favorite episodes. This was really fun. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to listening to these as well. See, there was a, a slightly mercenary approach in me saying to you do this. It means I actually get to listen to the show if I'm not on it. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. well, I don't I'm... actually listen to me. What do I want to do that for? Um, I have to do it because otherwise, you know, on my shows, you know, I get a 20% drop in downloads. So I have to do that. <laughs> But yeah, this this has been incredibly fun. I I really I'm glad I got to revisit this, and I'm hoping you know uh, once again this will get me into some shows that I haven't seen of Doctor Who, some episodes I haven't seen. So I'm looking forward to doing the next one. I've already got one uh, scheduled for uh, a couple of uh, people who are kind of relatively geeky to come on the show. So uh, that should be coming up here in the in the future. But uh, guys, I really appreciate you uh, coming on and talking about this. No problem. No, it was it was a delight to invite myself. <laughs> <laughs> Any anytime you can you can hone yourself into a Who True Freaks show, Andy, we are more than welcome to have you. Well, I also think the next thing we should do we should turn this around and let Dave pick his favorite one. Hey, yeah, Dave, do you have a? We kind of already did it though. Oh right, what well, all that? right. Do your second favorite then. It's 
Seventh Doctor. Um, we did uh, Remembrance already, so... I can't think of a new one. I'll, I'll see if I can find a second one for you and get back to you. Okay, well, Yeah, I thought that, that would only be fair. And, and I'll, I'll go ahead and put this call out to the rest of the people who uh, are uh, frequent uh, commenters or co- frequent uh, hosts on Who True Freaks. If you have a specific episode that you'd like to come on and talk about, do that, because if it gets me to watching Doctor Who from from the past, regardless of what era, I would love to do it, because this is just being... And, and to get to talk about it, it's just so much fun. But guys, thanks for coming on the show. This has really been a joy. Uh, I'm... <laughs> I'm rambling because I'm on, you know, basically on, you know, like my fourth cup of coffee. I've been up all night. So. <laughs> but uh, thanks everyone for uh, listening. Uh, if you've got emails, you can send that to, uh, I guess you can send that to, uh, send that to just one of the guys podcast at gmail.com and I'll get them there. In fact, actually, now that I mentioned that, that, that brings me around. We actually had an email sent to that oh. site. Ooh. Yeah. We've got one from uh, Chris and Sydney Franklin. I can only assume it's, I can only assume it's Chris. Sure it's from, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can only assume it's from Chris Franklin. But, you know, we'll, we'll honor Cindy in this email as well. Uh, Michael, my son, has this theory that Cindy actually writes all those emails. But what, she doesn't what, want anyone to know. What the Chris, you know, the, well, maybe Chris just dictates them to Cindy and, you know, he, he makes Cindy type it out. You know? so yeah, saying he's a dictator. <laughs> We're not in any way implying that Chris Franklin is a dictator. The opinions of Dave Walker held in this show are the opinions of Dave Walker and no one else. Well, this will actually be an interesting because uh, neither of you uh, were able to come on for the uh, first uh, for the episode we did last time about Peter Capaldi. So get your opinions here. Uh, uh, Chris writes in or Chris and Cindy write in with the uh, title Who True Blue. And he says, hey, Sean, a quick line that I just listened to and enjoyed the Who True Freaks roundtable on Deep Breath. My family are recent convert, or recent converts to Whovianism. I think that's a religion now, like Jediism. <laughs> if it isn't, it should be. Yes, having come in last spring. We got hooked about two seconds before Matt Smith turned in his resignation. We've gone back and watched a good chunk of the modern Who, with my son diving in headfirst and seeing about 90% of it, I'd say. We've partaken of some of the classic Doctors as well. So far, I like John Pertwee, always nice, which bodes well for me like Capaldi. While watching Deep Breath, my son kept wondering if Matt Smith would show up. I told him they wouldn't do that as it would undermine Capaldi. Boy, was I wrong. And a bit right. My son was ecstatic that his doctor appeared, but I'm kind of with you guys that it seemed to undercut Capaldi's position. Shag nailed it by saying the whole episode was an apology to new fans. Don't tell him I said that, though. Oops. (laughs) I'll never hear the end of it. No, you won't. Um... In some ways, I think that it might have been a smart move and perhaps even necessary because Hugh, uh, because Who is now huge. It's grown beyond its old diehard-only fan base to be a worldwide, worldwide phenomenon. This was also a concession to new, that new fan base who've never been through such a drastic change. It was a way to ease them into it. You old guys, and me being an old guy who knew something of Hugh, obviously he's not talking about Dave here, know the drill, since it stuck out... <laughs> <clears throat> yes. So, so it stuck out as awkward and unnecessary. Just my thoughts. I know you guys don't read emails on the show. Well, we're going to read emails from you, Chris, of course. But I need to get it out somehow. Thanks for keeping me entertained at work once more, Chris. Well, thanks, Chris. Now, since you, you guys... You get points for listening at work. 
yes, every time you listen at work, especially if you listen openly at work, you know, you know, extra bonus credit points to you. You win the internet for the week. Can I the only reason I listen to my own episodes in work that I'm on here? Just so I have something to listen to. Mm. But, uh, since you guys didn't really get to voice your opinions on uh, Deep Breath or, you know, Capaldi as a whole so far, would do you guys want to do a little talk about that before we head out? Yeah, that would be great. Okay, go ahead. Do you want to go first, Dave? Yeah, um, I, I kind of like what they're doing with them at the minute. It's, um, with the first episode, as far as I'm concerned, we didn't get him as the Doctor. We got him as the kind of intermediate, kind of confused character that a whole bunch of the other doctors have been i mean um david tennant he was kind of confused or at least unconscious for the start of his regeneration um sylvester mccoy thought the rani was mal for a bit so they're kind of continuing that on but i think they're he's trying to find himself in these episodes he's we're gradually seeing him discover who he is and he's looking at himself to see if he's a good man which they very explicitly say in one of the episodes. Um, but Deep Breath, I did enjoy, and it's not entirely because of the Tyrannosaurus at the very start. <laughs> if you're going to throw in a Tyrannosaurus, you're going to get me to like it. I'm sorry. Dinosaurs make everything better. It's 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 scientific <laughs> fact. There, there is science there. Um, but yeah, I, to be honest, I do agree with Shag. I don't mind him knowing I say that. Um, it is kind of an apology. Possibly they kind of need it. But I like that we had some time travel, you know, where he's cr- essentially crossing over his own timeline uh, to call Clara at that point. I kind of liked it because we haven't had that before. It's technically something new. And I wouldn't mind having other doctors from, from the past just to kind of chat with themselves. You know, that that would be maybe interesting as miniature webisodes. Okay. Apologies, um, Andy. What about you? What do you think? Um, when I was watching Deep Breath when it aired, I was at no point bored, and I've heard people complain about the pacing of it. There was no point where I was looking at my watch, going, "Is this still on?" Like I was with some of the other specials that they've done. Um, but there was something off about it, and I couldn't quite place my finger on what that was and it was listening to that episode that you guys did and again Shag's ego is going to be far too big (laughs) I mean it already is but it was when he said I just felt like I'd watched an 80 minute apology for Matt Smith not being the doctor anymore that the bell went off in my head that yeah that's what it was it was like they've got Peter Capaldi who is an absolutely magnificent actor but they spent the episode apologising for the fact that he was now the Doctor. And Shag's exactly right with that statement, and that kind of crystallised Deep Breath for me. The thing about Deep Breath that did work for me, I liked Clara's reaction to it, and I disagreed vehemently with you guys saying she looked a little bit off. I don't think she's ever looked better than she did in Deep Breath. You know, if on a superficial level. Even my wife said she looks like she's gotten prettier, which isn't fur. <laughs> and I agree with her. I agree. I thought she looked absolutely wonderful in that episode. But I loved her story arc. And I think that goes to what Dave is saying. That episode wasn't about the Doctor. That episode was about Clara and her reaction to 
under seeing a change, being with him when he regenerated. Now you can argue she knows that he regenerates, but knowing something and experiencing it and living through it are two completely different things. And that episode was about her. And so with Shag's little wise knowledge, not Shag's little wise point that yes. It was an 80-minute apology, and the knowledge that this is an episode about Clara, not the Doctor, I think I was able to appreciate a little bit more. As the series has gone on, I've not disliked it, but there's something about it that's just not working for me at the minute. I don't know what it is. I don't not like it. I don't think Capaldi should be got rid of. I think he's great, and I think they're doing some interesting things, but... This go to tie it all back to what we said at the beginning of the show. The Seeds of Doom is the kind of show that they don't do anymore, and maybe they should go back to doing just a good, solid horror story told maybe over one or two parts that doesn't delve into mythology or have an impossible girl or anything like that. Just give me a good story and let's see, let Capaldi off the leash and let him do what he wants to do because he was very funny in Robot of Sherwood. Mm hmm. <laughs> I, I think I think the past two episodes, as we're of recording, there's going to be another episode tonight. But uh, as of recording, Robots of Sherwood and Listen have been the uh, last two episodes, and I think they've finally kind of got Capaldi. It's it's starting to click a little bit more with me. Um, I, I I think I I still think that Capaldi is going to be a great Doctor, but they just yeah I agree with you, Andy. They just haven't quite got it yet. But yeah, I would love to see just a simple episode where it's much like the Seeds of Doom of the Doctor going in and doing something and not having to have, you know, this mythology of, you know, uh, of what's Clara's, you know, part in all this and who is the person in heaven and, you know, all these little, you know, season long seeds that they're trying to plant. I guess some pun intended. Um, it, if they could just have a, a one-off episode that doesn't really have to tie into the overall story arc, you know, that'd be, that'd be fun every once in a while. So there's, there's my take on it. When was the last time we had a two-parter? Hmm. Cause I've been trying to think of it here and the best I can do is the, what the, the two-part death of David Tennant. Um, I can't, have, have we had anything where it's been a kind of two-parter? Um, with a cliffhanger i mean oh the horrible people the almost people the almost that people one. oh well, yeah. that wasn't very good no. no i was thinking back to like the silence of library and that was you know before you but yeah yeah it's probably the almost so, people yeah then that one was kind of yeah disappointing yeah well not, not great because it, it had a good ending yeah, the structure of Smith's last season didn't really lend itself, did it? Because they split it into two. Yeah, it's, I think that that was one of the problems with it as well. It's, I would rather have a full kind of 13 episode, you know, go through than just bits and pieces scattered about here and there. With a 24 episode season, don't mind it so much because you can have like miniature story arcs going on for those episodes, you know, have like a six a seven episode kind of story arc with a nice um, kind of uh, cliffhanger to take you over the months where they're filming the next couple of episodes and getting the rest of the stuff out but for something that you've been filming for well at this point they would have been filming it for about 10 months give or take yeah Capaldi started like filming in the first week of January yeah so 
I, I don't want them to split it up again. That that was one of the worst parts of the last season. Uh, last couple of seasons, I think, because they split up for Let's Kill Hitler as well. That was that was split up to like three months, was it? Something yeah. like that. Yeah, there was a big long gap. Yeah, the unfortunate thing is, you know, since this the series are only running like thirteen episodes, you know, splitting it up into six, seven, you know, episode bits just kind of diminishes it. You know, uh, if they've got, if they're only going to do a limited number of episodes, you know, do them all in one big chunk, and you know, either start it later in the season or whenever. You know, I I don't like the the whole splitting it up you know, over the course of time thing. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how this series does well, how this series does, sorry, when it completes, because this is the first time since it returned in 2005 that it will have aired in autumn through Christmas. Every other series aired in the summertime. I mean, it started, it always used to start an Easter weekend, didn't it? From when Christopher Eccleston came back and so on and ran through the summer. So it's going to be interesting when we look at it as a whole. I mean, you can't really get a picture. People are saying that the ratings are falling and all of that stuff but it's it seems to be consistently performing as far as i can see when you factor in you know watching it on demand later and time shifting and stuff so it's going to be interesting to look at it as a whole when we get to the end of the series and see how it performed erring in this time slot it's also had a consistent time slot hasn't it as well sorry dave i do apologize it's it's almost been consistently on at 7 30 as well yeah i hear it's shifting though yeah, well, Strictly comes back next week, doesn't it? And Strictly always I seems repress. to. Yeah, well, Strictly always seems to have different length episodes depending on where they're up to in the series. So I'm hoping that they're not going to mess around with Doctor Who too much because I think 7:30 is a good time for it. I hear they're pushing it back to 8:30 for oh, us. I hope not. It's what I've heard, unfortunately. But starting when? Honestly, don't know. Um. Uh, it was on a paper someone told me about um, on Wednesday that Doctor Who was shifting time. Right. Uh, it was time Lord Time Shift, I think, was what they went <laughs> with. Because right. I think 8.30 is a 9.15 finish. And I don't yeah. know that you're cutting off some of its audience, though. Because younger ones wouldn't mm. necessarily be staying up. No, so I hope that's not true. 7.30 seems like a good time to me. See, uh, if I may ask, you know, I know a lot of the BBC channels don't have advertisements splitting up the shows. The shows just run in their entirety from beginning to end without any commercial breaks. Yeah, yeah. Which, you guys why, for that. which is it's, why I think this series is 45 minutes long, so we can show it in territories that do have commercials without cutting it too much. Well, and that's I, the, think that's, I think that's purely a commercial decision. And I think that's the thing that's negatively affecting the show over here is the fact that it is kind of cut up with commercials. When it airs on BBC America, it's and that was one of the complaints that we had, you know, in watching Deep Breath, that it was cut up by the commercials and it really affected the flow of it. So it's unfortunate that, you know, that here in the States, we have to have the shows aired with, you know, commercials for AT&T and you know, infinity cars and whatever all through it. So it's... Yeah, next week, 2030, the caretaker mm. uh, is the 27th. Uh, so that's when it's time shifting anyway. Right, okay. Well, I hope that isn't true, but we'll see. 
Well, guys, once again, I really enjoyed talking about this episode. I really enjoyed getting your thoughts on Capaldi as a whole. You know, I think, I think you know, he's got a good chance, you know, to, but, you know, we'll see. He can't be, you know, he can't be as good as Tom Baker, though. No one will ever be as good as Tom Baker. <laughs> Some people would disagree with that. Well, they're all wrong. Let's just <laughs> leave it at that. <laughs> but guys, we'll be getting together again sometime soon to talk about Doctor Who. Uh, Dave, you'll be getting me an idea of the uh, the second your second favorite Doctor Who. And uh, like I said, we've got uh, some other stuff coming down the pipe. So hope uh, you guys will come and join us again uh, the next time out for another episode of Who True Freaks. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. When the doctor appears with a mop, get me out of the Pandorica. But you're not in the Pandorica. Yes, I am. Well, yes, I was. It's complicated, but I won't explain it now because. Then he disappeared into a hazy fuzz. That man, I can't explain what he does the things he does. Oh my god, I don't have a clue. These paradoxes are hard to construe. My mind is blown, I bet yours is too. Well, I guess this is Doctor Who. It's the Big Bang 2 and 92 Review on I've just happened for my eyes Time has gone askew The universe has to I'll try and explain to you The Big Bang 2 The Big Bang 2 Visit our website at 2TrueFreaks.com 2TrueFreaks is always spelled T-W-O T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S You can email 2TrueFreaks directly at 2TrueFreaks at gmail.com 2TrueFreaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. You can find Two True Freaks on Facebook. Just search for Two True Freaks. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. Thanks for listening, and join us every Monday for new episodes of Two True Freaks. There's someone missing, the question's who? Unless you remember something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue. And that's the Big Bang too.